everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It is episode 64 and well in the United States anyway it's Thanksgiving and we all sit around the table stuff ourselves with turkey and watch football and commemorate the time when the pilgrims had their butts saved by the Native Americans, the Wampanoag tribe, I'm probably mispronouncing that, and uh, basically taught them how to grow corn and grow food and all kinds of stuff and save them from that rough winter. Well, this is the lumber industry update. So I'm here to tell you that uh, the pilgrims, they were lumber merchants, folks. <laughs> they certainly were separatists. They were trying to find religious freedom, all the stuff that we've heard, but their trip on the Mayflower, their trip over to the, the US, or, or North America, it wasn't the US then, that was financed by the Plymouth Company. And the Plymouth Company, they wanted those pilgrims to send them stuff. You know, okay, we're gonna pay for you to go over there in the Mayflower, we're gonna pay for you to set up this you know, forward operating base, but we want you to send us furs, and mostly we want you to send us timber. Because you see, the British, they were kind of already out of wood at this point. They kind of ran out of wood in the 1500s. When you think about uh, all of the harvesting, first of all, think about England. It's a, it's a tiny little island comparatively. And there'd been harvesting of the forests since the Middle Ages. And as you moved into um, uh, the age of exploration, and the British built, you know, this big powerful navy and they kept shooting at the French and the French kept shooting back and the Spanish Armada kept shooting at them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You had to constantly keep rebuilding those ships. You also had to keep um, building homes for this blossoming empire that you had and the, and the burgeoning population. And yet you still want to live on a little island with the forests all gone. So by the 1600s, when the pilgrims were landing in Plymouth Colony, lumber, timber was a major, major demand from England. And, you know, it, it, certainly the, the pilgrims and the Plymouth Colony weren't the first timber merchants. Maybe you call them one of the first timber merchants. Certainly Jamestown had been pushing out uh, lumber for a couple decades, I think. I'm getting my dates mixed up now. I just remember 1607 for Jamestown. I want to believe the pilgrims were talking 1620s. Someone's going to correct me on that, but regardless, they weren't the first, but they were essentially lumber merchants. Now, not everybody on the Mayflower were religious separatists. Certainly the Plymouth Company sent along some, call them contractors, you know, who were going to be bringing back some um, material, fur traders, trappers, they were going to be specializing in exporting back uh, fur and material. And you had a couple lumber guys that came along as well in order to make sure that they were bringing back quality materials. But ultimately, it was up to the, not only the crew, the Mayflower, the pilgrims, everybody on the ship to make the colony successful, to meet the demands of their backers, their financial backers, the Plymouth Company, and start sending timber. And that really, when you look at any colony in North America at the time, that's what it was all about. It was about getting timber and sending it back. Um, certainly, there had been uh, there were new species that the, uh, the the British and, for that matter, the Europeans weren't really aware of. But they saw these enormous forests, huge virgin trees, and really began to think, "Oh my goodness, there's our salvation! We finally have oak 
for our ships. We have um, this incredibly large white pine that's perfect for the masts of our sailing ships. Um, firewood, folks. I mean, you're talking the age of industrialism as you move further along. You needed firewood to power the, the foundries uh, for, for making steel and things like that. Firewood was a major demand and you could easily chop it up, put it on a ship and send it back over to, to uh, Europe and to Great Britain. So it's kind of interesting to think about the pilgrims and the whole story, the, the romanticized story we have of the first Thanksgiving. And really behind all that was the lumber industry saying, get us some material. I think eventually the Plymouth uh, company was so displeased with the returns they were getting that the pilgrims were actually able to buy out their contract. And I'm sure the Plymouth uh, company just kind of wrote it off as a bad debt because frankly, most of the pilgrims weren't lumber people. They were uh, worked more in the textile industry and they were farmers and things like that. They didn't really know anything about, certainly they knew how to cut down trees. I think as any self-respecting person of the, the day knew how to do that. But as far as selecting material for mass, selecting the right white pine for a mass, selecting the right cedars, um, for used below the waterline in some of the ships, selecting the right oaks, differentiating between white oak and red oak uh, was obviously a big deal because you were using white oak in your ships and white oak was the closest semblance to the English oak, um, Quercus rober, um, similar to, to red oak, Quercus rubra, um, but very, very different. As we know, uh, North American red oak has big wide open pores that funnels water straight through it, but it also has a high tanning count, which makes it fantastic for the coopers in making barrels. And other things that were coming out of the colonies at the time, sugar, tapping all those maple trees, making sugar, um, all of the, the um, uh, tobacco, everything needed to have those red oak casks or barrels, however you want to call them, made in order to ship back to, um, to Europe. It was absolutely important. But you needed people with a certain amount of specialization in the lumber trade in order to diagnose the best trees to fell, to, to best um, mill or saw the trees into something that could be stacked on a ship uh, and not absolutely destroyed. You think about our, our modern times, felling a tree, sawing a tree into boards and getting it into a kiln um, quickly to produce the best grade, to produce the, the least amount of kiln defect. They didn't have any of that stuff going on. They were cutting stuff down, sawing it at boards, throwing it on a ship, and um, in some instances shipping logs, but a lot of times they were being sawn at least or hewn into cants because you can stack cants. You put a bunch of logs on a ship, you gotta take a lot of extra steps in order to prevent them from rolling around. You get the mass off center, that poor ship can end up capsizing. So all kinds of things had to be done to the material just to be put on a ship. Well, then it's stuck in the hold of a ship as it sails back across the Atlantic Ocean and Lord knows what kind of defects are going on within the wood itself. So there were lumber specialists that were in charge of, of processing the material and the pilgrims, they didn't have any of those. So yeah, long story short, the Plymouth company said, sorry guys, uh, we're writing you off. We're calling you a tax deduction now. And uh, yeah, you go ahead and buy out your contract and uh, good riddance because you're terrible lumber people. But really, this was, you know, a timber, uh, a timber export schema. Um, it was a campaign to bring more material in. And I tell you what, 
the the British quickly discovered the magic of the poplar. Poplars don't grow in England. Um, I remember Roy Underhill once saying that the mountains go the wrong way. The mountains face the wrong direction to allow the poplar to grow. Um, and it just, it's not there, uh, at least at the time. There may be some that have been transplanted in England now, but poplar, as we know, fast growing, relatively short lived, but enormous tree and a lot of good uses for many, many different household things. Also can be used for clabbered siding and things like that. And, you know, you, you cut one down and another one grows back, you know, within five years, it's almost ready for harvest again. And poplars today are enormous. You can only imagine what they were like in the 16 and 1700s, just how big they were. As I said earlier, the white pines were harvested um, and kept in uh, as, as long and as straight and close to the log as possible, used for sailing ship masts. Um, that was one of the biggest things that the British Admiralty was seeking from these timber contracts that were over in North America at the time. Cedars were found all over the place. Uh, Atlantic white cedar, primarily what we're talking about. Obviously, Western red came much, much later as we moved to Western expansion, but that Atlantic white cedar was fantastic for its water resistant nature. So a lot of the stuff that was below the waterline in ships um, was, was white cedar. Um, Cypress, you were starting to see from some of the southern colonies, you're starting to see it from places like the Jamestown colony and points south. But when we're talking Massachusetts and we're focusing on the pilgrims because it's Thanksgiving, not a whole lot of Cypress going on. But walnut, oh, absolutely. Walnut was highly prized. It's so funny because we think of like, we fast forward a little bit and think of, um, you know, uh, 18th, uh, 17th century, uh, you think of mahogany and you know furniture being made out of mahogany. Well, mahogany had been used for furniture for centuries. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of people that claim some of the golden age of furniture wasn't actually genuine mahogany, but it was African species like Sipili and Utili because those reddish woods have been coming out of Africa far longer than the wood had been coming out of North America. But the funny thing is, is even though we associate mahogany with that time period, walnut was highly prized. The walnut market was much stronger. The pricing on walnut was much higher than that of mahogany because it was a heck of a lot harder to get. There were established trade routes coming out of Central America and the Caribbean sending mahogany into Europe, but also well-established trade routes out of Africa, as I said, bringing that red wood in. You bring walnut along, and even today, walnut is quite unique with that brown color. There are very few trees in the world that have that natural brown color, and man, was it popular. You throw a couple of coats of button lac over top of that, and you've got this deep red-brown lustrous wood that makes incredible furniture. So walnut was, and funny, still today, one of the prized species that was being pulled out of North America. And the, the, the British were nuts for it, clamoring for the stuff. As much as they could get their hands on, they wanted more and more of it. Um, maple, certainly. Um, it became super popular for the its extractive, maple syrup, the sugars. It was like the number one sweetener throughout the 1600s and in the 1700s. It was, and you know, you think about uh, in, in modern parlance, you think of, you know, all the uh, sea salts and, and exotic spices and things, and we, we market them by, by saying, oh, it's from these far-flung regions of the world. Well, back then, it's like, not only is this sweetener in your tea, 
this is fine Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, maple sugar, you know, and, and I, can, I can just, I can see the, uh, the, the copywriting now in the, the London Times saying that, you know, buy John Smith's authentic Massachusetts Bay Colony sweetener. So it, it is interesting when you think of the Thanksgiving story, there's no one really ever talks about the fact that they were really there to export lumber. This was kind of the beginnings of the timber trade. And one might say the beginning of the end because things got really out of control really fast with over-harvesting. We're still a couple hundred years away from that, but this was the beginning of the boom. This was the beginning of this thought that, you know, North America has endless forests and we'll never run out there and we can just go crazy and chop all this stuff down. But it was particularly interesting when you look at the species that didn't exist in the UK and didn't really exist in Europe. Things like hickory, uh, chestnut. Chestnut was another one that the British Admiralty loved to use below the waterline on their ships. But hickory, uh, American hornbeam, those, both of those became this like boom in tool making. Um, the, the super, super dense, hard nature of American hornbeam. Heck, my Lee Nielsen chisels have hornbeam handles on them. Even today, hornbeam is still used as a great, super dense, uh, very homogenous grain tool making wood. Hickory, you know, from baseball bats to axe handles, maybe not baseball bats back in the 1600s, but axe handles, um, the, the Native Americans were using split hickory for like spear shafts and arrows and things like that. Um, and uh, <laughs> speaking of arrows, I also find it funny, um, essentially the first Thanksgiving was a celebration of the forming of an alliance, like a modern day reality show. <laughs> the uh, the uh, Wampanoag tribe and the pilgrims formed an alliance against another tribe that they were fighting with. So you know, there's the, uh, the dark underbelly of that story. They were celebrating getting together to go beat up on somebody else, I suppose. But I'm not here to dispel um, and ruin the romanticized version of, of Thanksgiving. I do just find it particularly interesting. And I can only imagine being a British colonist at the time, being faced with these massive forests and, and thinking, my Lord, like, first of all, I don't even know what that tree is, but dang, it's big. Um, and, and cutting down some of these species and splitting them into wood or sawing them or hewing them into clabbered siding for their homes and things like that, and never having worked with walnut or American black cherry or this incredible northeastern white pine that they didn't have, um, finding a hickory tree for the first time and splitting that and watching it pop apart like it's you know a perforated edge and then seeing just how flexible and how strong it was. Um, uh, again, I mentioned the poplar already. You can imagine the amount of um, serving bowls and spoons that were carved from the poplar tree, the amount of clabbered siding that was made from poplar, from red oak, from white oak, from chestnut. Um, these are all species that these colonists had no prior experience with. Now, some of them may have had some experience with oak, certainly uh, English oak, some might call it brown oak. Um, you know, and you think, okay, well, here's another oak. And there were subtle differences. You know, English oak is, um, I guess it's closest to be compared to white oak. Uh, certainly from a density perspective, it's, uh, it's, it's much similar. You find that English oak has um, tighter growth rings, a little bit more homogenous texture to it when you work with it. 
Granted, my only experience with English oak is, you know, modern English oak. I didn't have any experience working with English oak from 300 years ago. But, you know, definitely major, major difference between that and red oak, um, English oak and red oak, that is. Hardness is actually softer than uh, the softest of those three species, uh, red, white, and, and English oak. It's about 100 uh, less on the Jenka scale than uh, red oak. But that lovely smooth consistency that you get with white oak, even to a greater degree with, with English oak, really kind of spoiled a lot of the British. Um, and then they started working with red oak and quickly realized, okay, this is a totally different bird. Um, it's oak, but it's not the same. Um, and I would love to know like who first thought, well, let's make a barrel out of it. And who first realized like the incredible uh, extractive nature of the, the high tannin count in red oak and what it could actually do to things like tobacco, to the, the export of, of, of so many of the different goods that relied upon hogsheads and barrels and things like that. And then having the British Navy coming in and saying, okay, let's cut down this oak because this, this white oak, because this is the closest to English oak. But even then seeing the subtle differences, shipbuilding trades started up all up and down the East Coast because this was one of the best ways to export lumber for making um, the British Navy was to take that lumber and build it into a ship first, then sail it across the Atlantic Ocean. So you started to see the British Admiralty sending over shipwrights um, as colonists and harvesting this boon of material in order to make the, the British Navy right there on the shores of North America. And to have some shipwright who has you know, done his apprenticeship and his journeyman and spent all his time working with English oak, suddenly to be like completely transported to a different species. Um, not only was he working with a different species, his tools had different species in the handles. Um, that would just be kind of amazing. And, and I look, I kind of fast forward to today and I think about how fortunate I am to be able to have exposure to a lot of different woods uh, working for a lumber company, but also just, you know, the internet has democratized and, and opened up the buying of wood so you can buy from all over the world and get exposure to so many different species. But back then, you might have worked with one or two species, whatever was out your door, and that's what you were stuck with. To, to be transported thousands of miles across the ocean and have an entirely new palette of woods to choose from must have been like a kid in a candy store to begin to discover all the differences, not only the, the differences in species, but just the sheer size of the trees in North America. The, the virgin forest, just massively tall, wide trunk trees with zero branches, completely straight green material. And you can imagine uh, like a, a shingle maker or clabbered siding sitting there with a fro, um, just splitting material after material, this long straight grain stuff and just thinking he died and gone to heaven. He can suddenly his shingle production just went up tenfold because of the lumber, especially the Atlantic white cedar they were using was just splitting if you looked at it wrong. Just, just, that would be so cool. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm waxing philosophical here, but it is interesting to, to think of the story of the first Thanksgiving and recognize that what funded it was the lumber industry. So again, if we, we think about this explosion of the timber trade because of these untapped forests of North America, 
Fast forward through some of the gross negligence of harvesting through the 1800s and the early 1900s. But then we look at it from the perspective of the 21st century and the regulation of harvesting that has caused, and the protection of a lot of forests that have caused a rebounding in a number of species. And the sustainable, sustainably managed silviculture that exists in North America today. And it is kind of exciting because, as I said earlier, the internet opened up the global species to so many people and exotics, at least exotics in North America, became all in vogue and designers wanted all of these species from all over the place. And unfortunately, that has produced some negative results on those forests in other parts of the world. But what I find particularly interesting, and as we you know, are coming to the close of 2021, uh, and maybe I'll do kind of a predictions episode as we close out this year, but I am seeing a trend back towards the domestics, the North American domestics, in the North American market that is. This fascination with the enormity of the trees that naturally grow in North America, that's still there, people. It's not that the trees, you know, you, you go to a lumberyard and you think, oh, these boards are skinny and the grade is bad and you just can't get them like they used to. More often than not, that's not true. What has happened is the market has said there's a demand for this particular width and this particular length, or the market has pigeonholed the species into a certain application. So the sawmills are sawing those boards in to meet that particular application. So it's not that there's not wide walnut out there or wide cherry or anything. It's that the market doesn't really demand that and the sawmills can saw them into specific sizes, get a better yield for their tree, but also make a higher profit from some of that. But back to my trending idea, as well, COVID and supply chain restrictions have really thrown a monkey wrench into the exotic market over the last year. And we're seeing some major political changes um, around uh, protection of some of these forests that is going to make the exotic market, well, go up in price pretty dramatically, but also become even less available. And that could be a very, very good thing from an environmental perspective, but it could be a very scary thing from a lumber perspective. And because of that, more and more people are turning their sights back to the material that's here on our own shores. And with the sustainable practices that have been put into place over the last hundred years, and with a greater eye towards sustainability, if we're going to cut down this tree, what are we doing not to eliminate that resource in order to have that resource available to us five years, 20 years, 50 years into the future? The, the science is clear in that respect and proper management of forests can very easily be done as well as managing the demand from the industry itself. So because of that, we're starting to look more at some of our domestic species. And I think we're going to see greater, um, how shall I say this, um, specialization of some of those species. And it could be really exciting instead of a just being able to buy cherry or being able to buy maple, um, we might actually start to see subdivisions within that market where suddenly rift cherry becomes something that's more available or a greater expansion in the grades. 
you know, FAS doesn't really cut it. It's not really descriptive anymore of what can be available. And we've seen little sub pockets of grading like 80-20, um, 80% heart, 20% sap cherry, or all heart cherry. Those little things that don't really have any standardization official designation, but are kind of being used at the grassroots level among various lumber yards could suddenly become the thing. I'm just sticking with cherry at this point, but and it's interesting because Jerry is kind of depressed in the market right now and it's not being specced by a lot of designers, but say that begins to turn around and we start to, instead of just seeing cherry specced on things, we're specking specific color grades of cherry or specific cuts of cherry. So now the lumber yards in response to that market demand aren't just carrying rough sawn cherry anymore, they're carrying cherry in flat sawn, quartered, rift, all heart, 50% hard. Um, even even better could be you know a, a, a surge in the use of cherry sapwood. So now that single rack that used to just have four quarter cherry on it could be broken into six different racks with different subgrades and grains and cuts of cherry available. That to me could be really exciting as a woodworker to be able to walk into a lumberyard and have my choice of a lot of those things. Don't get me wrong, we have some of that choice now, but you dig through the pack and you have to do a fair amount of uh, rummaging around in order to find it. If the market says there's a demand for say riffs on cherry, you're going to see lumber buyers, sawyers looking for that, specking it, sawing, taking advantage of frankly, the greater profits that can come from that specialization of rift, but all the way up the supply chain, you're gonna see a greater attention to detail in the growing and the harvesting of the tree in order to maximize that particular cut. And I'm just talking about cherry at this point, but this could extend to, to white oak, it could extend to, to, to white pine. All of these domestic species that have kind of become a commodity, kind of become blasé, because you've got this huge world of, of exotic material out there, could have a total renaissance. And I actually see that happening relatively soon. I, I'm already seeing it among some designers that are starting to spec more and more domestics, but not just by species. They're specking the species and the cut and the grain and, and all of that. You know, they're being very, very specific and it's forcing the supply chain of the lumber industry to respond to that. So. Long departure from talking about the first Thanksgiving in the Pilgrims and one of the first lumber trades that started here in North America, but we saw this pendulum swing that way and the total demand for North American domestics was huge back in the 1600s and it started to wane and now I see the pendulum swinging back the other way and I see domestics becoming a lot more popular. So we shall see folks what happens and yay, it's a holiday so I'm gonna keep this episode a little bit short. If you have comments, please, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> I'd love to hear where I got my historical um, uh, inaccuracies in this episode as well. But just remember, as you're sitting down to eat your turkey, that uh, pilgrims were lumbermen too. So go buy some lumber, folks. <laughs>